please be advised, this episode contains detailed discussions of violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. Around 10.30 p.m. on Monday, September 30, 1985, Texas State Trooper Richard Cottle pulled his cruiser off U.S. Highway 84 in McLennan County, about 13 miles from Waco, Texas, to investigate a car on the side of the road thought to belong to a missing woman from nearby Mejia. Trooper Cottle made a gruesome discovery when he opened the trunk and found the remains of 32-year-old Dorothy Estep inside. Hello, and welcome to Box in the Basement podcast. I'm your host, Arlene. And I'm Leah. In 1996, my world was shattered when my uncle Leon Lorellas was shot execution style in a small town in Texas. To this day, his murder remains unsolved, and the pain of that injustice continues to haunt me, my family, and Leon's friends and co-workers. Here at Box in the Basement, we want to shed light on the overwhelming number of unsolved murders and disappearances here in Texas and beyond. Ultimately, we want to get justice for Leon and for all the victims whose cases are sitting, collecting dust in a box in a basement. Mejia, Texas is a small town in Limestone County, about 40 miles east of Waco. In 1985, Mejia's population was right around 7,000 people, which is about the same size as it is today. The area near what is now Mejia was occupied by the Comanche people and other native inhabitants into the 19th century, when the U.S. Army stood up an outpost that would become known as Fort Parker. If you're from Texas, you may know the story of Cynthia Ann Parker, a nine-year-old girl who was kidnapped and subsequently raised by Comanche people in the area. This is the place in Texas where that occurred. Like many towns in Texas in the mid-19th century, life was pretty slow and uneventful until the railroad came to town. A sister company of the Houston and Texas Central Railroad laid out the town of Mejia in 1870, and the town was officially incorporated in 1873, named after General Jose Antonio Mejia, a hero of the Texas Revolution whose family had land in the area. A huge deposit of natural gas was discovered in 1912, and an oil deposit was found in 1920, ushering in a huge economic boom and influx of people. Between 1920 and 1922, Mejia grew from around 3,400 people to almost 35,000. Decline in oil production and the Great Depression in the 1930s caused the town's residents to scatter to the wind. The population dropped to around 6,500 in the early 30s, and it stayed relatively stable ever since. 1985 was the year Mikhail Gorbachev assumed power in the Soviet Union, becoming its last leader before its eventual dissolution. Ronald Reagan was sworn in for his second term as U.S. president, and Reaganomics took effect. Commercial airliner hijackings dominated the news that year, with TWA Flight 847 being the most high-profile. This was the flight where U.S. Navy diver Robert Stetham was beaten, shot, and then thrown onto the tarmac in Beirut, Lebanon. Blockbuster Video, Quicken Loans, Papa John's Pizza, and Samuel Adams were all founded in 1985, and Madonna launched her first major headlining tour. The average family was watching The Cosby Show, Family Ties, Murder, She Wrote, and Cheers on TV. Kids were into Care Bears, Teddy Ruxpin, 
Pound Puppies, and the original Super Mario Brothers. The week of September 29, 1985, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits was at the top of the Billboard Hot 100, and Dorothy Estep may also have been listening to Coolin' the Gang, Wham!, and Phil Collins. Ronnie Millsap topped the country charts with The Judds, The Highwaymen, Alabama, Dolly Parton, and Hank Williams Jr. not far behind. Invasion USA knocked Back to the Future out of the number one spot at the box office that week, and Lake Wobegon Days by Garrison Keillor was at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, though A Handmaid's Tale would be the number one seller that year. Cats ruled Broadway in 1985, and Michael Jordan was named NBA's Rookie of the Year. Dorothy Estep was 32 years old and a social worker specializing in child protection at the time of her murder in 1985. We don't have a lot of personal information about Dorothy, but we do know that she was divorced and had a five-year-old daughter with her ex at the time of her death. She and her ex-husband, Kenneth Estep, shared custody of the girl. And Dorothy was last seen by a neighbor leaving her house on the evening of September 29th to pick her up at Kenneth's house in Hubbard, Texas, around 25 minutes away. Dorothy was supposed to pick up her daughter at 6 p.m., but according to her husband, she never arrived. She didn't show up to work the next morning either, and a concerned co-worker unable to get a hold of her reported her missing. So like the Kathleen Ramp case, we have another case where it wasn't the ex-husband who reported a woman missing, it was her co-worker. Right. We'll talk about theories and red flags later on. Another co-worker of Dorothy's, at least I'm assuming it was another co-worker, it's not very clear if this was the same person who filed the missing persons report or if this was a different co-worker. So this other co-worker reported seeing what they believed was Dorothy's yellow 1981 Plymouth Sapporo sitting on the side of Highway 84 in McLennan County, around 13 miles from Waco. State Trooper Cottle, who we mentioned in the intro, noted the car's left front tire was flat. He found the keys on the floorboard and found Dorothy's body in the trunk. She was fully clothed, and there was a significant amount of blood on the back of her head, leading Sergeant Bob Prince, the Texas Ranger, on the case to speculate that she'd been struck on the back of the head, though he didn't rule out the possibility that she may have been shot. By the time the state trooper found Dorothy's body, the Justice of the Peace estimated that she'd been dead at least 13 hours. Sometime between 9 p.m. on Sunday, the same evening she was supposed to pick up her daughter, and 9 a.m. on Monday, September 30th. And while there was a large amount of blood on Dorothy's head, there wasn't a ton of blood evidence inside the car, and no sign of a struggle inside, leading Sergeant Prince to conclude that Dorothy had been killed at another location, put in the trunk of her car, and then driven to the spot where the car was eventually found off US-84. And that is really all the information we have at this point. As far as I can find, there have been no real leads developed, no viable suspects, and no persons of interest have publicly been identified. So what happened to Dorothy Estep? The other people mentioned in the articles and reports we have access to are the co-workers who reported her missing and reported her car on the side of the road and her ex-husband. I have not found any information that she was in a heated custody battle with her ex or that he was a violent guy or anything. 
Of course, the suspicion is always on the partner, but as far as I know, he was cleared pretty early on. It's a little troubling that he wasn't the one to raise the alarm after Dorothy failed to show up to his house to pick up their daughter, but we don't know the whole story there. This was the 80s, and it's very possible that he did talk to the authorities, but was told he couldn't file a missing persons report until a certain amount of time had passed. That's a common theme in these types of cases. Again, that's pure speculation on my part. It's also possible this kind of thing had happened before. We don't have any information one way or another. Dorothy was a social worker, so it's likely she got called out to deal with children in the area at odd hours with some frequency. Maybe she was on call sometimes. It was 1985, and long before cell phones were something everyone had. Maybe it wasn't unusual for her to be late or miss a pickup time, and she and her ex had an understanding. We just don't know. Yeah, there are just too many questions and unknowns to really get a gut feeling one way or the other. Is there anyone else we know of that might have had a motive to kill her? The only other thing I can think of is that a parent or a family member of a child she dealt with in the community got revenge. Social workers have to make tough calls regarding children in questionable situations, and I think it's possible she made some enemies. Removing a child from a home, testifying in court, those kinds of things can cause people to get angry and want vengeance. While we were doing research, I saw that she had been interviewed a number of times in the local paper regarding cases involving children she was helping. This is a very big town, and she didn't keep a low profile, so some not-so-nice people knew who she was. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I've known some people who have dealt with Child Protective Services over the years, and there's definitely been some animosity there. I can totally see how a parent or family member might feel slighted or wronged and may feel the need to take it out on a person just doing their job. As of February 2024, law enforcement feels like they have exhausted all leads and they are seeking input from the public. If you have any information regarding the 1985 murder of Dorothy Estep in McLennan County, Texas, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-252-TIPS. That's 1-800-252-8477. Just before 7 a.m. on June 30th, 2004, Beth Hicks walked out to her truck to head to work and was ambushed and beaten to death with a blunt weapon. There were no witnesses to the crime. Nothing was stolen from her purse or her truck, and there was very little evidence left behind. Twenty years later, the murder of this beloved probation officer remains one of Bernie Texas's most disturbing mysteries. 2004 was the year NASA landed the Spirit and Opportunity rovers on Mars. Al-Qaeda bombed commuter trains in Madrid, Spain, killing 193 people and injuring 2,000 more. An earthquake registering 9.3 on the Richter scale occurred in the Indian Ocean near Indonesia, killing at least 290,000 people. The Summer Olympics were held in Athens in 2004, with Michael Phelps tying the medal hall record, taking home six gold and two bronze medals. And Brazilian marathon runner Vanderlei Lima was assaulted on the course four miles from the finish line by a deranged spectator in one of the oddest moments in Olympic history. 
Usher ruled the Billboard Hot 100 chart the week of June 30, 2004, with three singles in the top 10. Gretchen Wilson's Redneck Woman topped the Hot Country chart that week, with Rascal Flatts and Keith Urban not far behind. Fahrenheit 9-11 was number one at the box office. Song of Susanna by Stephen King was at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And the hottest shows on TV were CSI, both the original and the Miami spinoff, American Idol, Desperate Housewives, Survivor, and Grey's Anatomy. Livestrong bracelets were all the rage. MySpace was the place to be online. World of Warcraft made its debut and the original Star Wars trilogy was released on DVD for the first time ever. Bernie, Texas has a really interesting history that's directly linked to the revolutions of 1848 in Europe. But I know not everyone is as big of a nerd as I am, so I'll spare you the really deep dive. In short, Bernie was settled largely by German immigrants in the mid-19th century. These immigrants created what they called Latin settlements in the hill country— where they would converse in Latin about science, philosophy, literature, and music. These immigrants originally settled in Llano County, but couldn't make a go of it and eventually moved farther south, ending up in Bernie, among other places in the area. Bernie remained a small, rather primitive settlement for decades until the favorable weather and picturesque views made it a popular destination for health resorts and retreats, which were all the rage back then. The Great Depression nearly caused Bernie to fold as the cotton industry collapsed and tourism all but stopped. But the town slowly rebuilt itself, and by the 2020 census, nearly 20,000 people called Bernie home. In 2004, the population would have been around half that, however. Today, Bernie is a thriving city that sits 31 miles north of downtown San Antonio. That may seem like a long distance, but once you hit Bernie on I-10, you're essentially in civilization all the way to the outskirts of San Antonio proper. There's an H-E-B grocery store there and all kinds of luxury car dealerships. It's a nice place. Beth Hicks was born on July 27, 1967, in Pleasanton, Texas, which is just to the south of San Antonio to Sari Trimble and Howard Hicks. Though some sources have her as originally being from Divine, Texas, about 33 miles away. She graduated from Stephen F. Austin University in 1991 with a dual degree. At the time of her death, she was working as a probation officer for Kendall County, Texas, and had approximately 100 probationers under her supervision, and she lived in the Foothills Mobile Home Ranch, just outside of Bernie City Limits. She was engaged at the time to Army Sergeant Dwayne Davis, who was stationed at Fort Hood, now known as Fort Cavazos, in Killeen, Texas, and their wedding was planned for the following month. As she left for work on the morning of Wednesday, June 30, 2004, Beth Hicks was attacked outside of her truck. She was struck with a heavy blunt object, probably a tire iron, a piece of pipe, a metal bat, or something similar, and beaten until she died of her injuries. She was found at 9.05 in the morning by law enforcement, lying on the ground near her pickup truck with the driver's side door hanging open. The truck hadn't been disturbed, nothing was missing from it, and it hadn't been moved. Beth's purse was found nearby, but it was also undisturbed. Nothing had been removed, including the handgun that she kept holstered inside. 
Investigators found fresh pry marks on the door of her home, but nothing was found to be missing from inside or disturbed in any noticeable way. Robbery was ruled out as a motive early on as a result. Investigators' efforts were frustrated pretty early on as there were no witnesses to the crime. It's a fairly small mobile home park, but nobody heard anything or saw anything that morning. A neighbor outside of the mobile home community said he heard someone yell or cry out right around the time Beth is thought to have died. But that's pretty much it. In addition to those pry marks found on her door, police also found a shoe print and a single fingerprint. The fingerprint was identified in 2013 as belonging to a first responder, but as of February 2024, the shoe print has not been identified, or at least that information has not been made public. The 100 or so people she supervised on probation immediately came under investigation, but no leads were ever developed. Her fiancé also came under scrutiny. He was actually still married to someone else despite having a wedding to Beth Hicks planned for later in the summer, but his alibi seems to be tight. He was seen on post in Killeen during the day in question. Beth's family is convinced she was killed by someone she knew, though nobody has more specific ideas than that. She had contact with a lot of people working for the sheriff's office, and many of those people had checkered past. Right before her death, Beth shared with her family that she thought someone may have been inside her home while she was gone. She noticed some of her things moved around, though nothing was taken. She never reported the incident to the police, however, so there's not much to go on there. So the pry marks on her door may have been from the morning she died, or they may have been from this incident. I guess there's really no way to tell. Right, and because she didn't report the incident, we don't know if the pry marks were prior to her death. If this was done on the day of their death, I'm not sure why someone would have tried to get into her place after killing her. Unless they were after something specific that people other than Beth didn't know was important. Like some paperwork or some other record. Maybe a thumb drive. Someone looking through her belongings may not realize it's missing if they didn't know it existed in the first place. But again, nothing was disturbed as far as anyone could tell. You'd think if someone was rifling through her belongings looking for a piece of paper or a thumb drive, things would be strewn about, knocked on the floor or something. Beth's fiancé Dwayne was cleared early on from what I can tell. Bernie is about two and a half hours from Fort Cavazos, and like we said earlier, he was seen several times on post during the day on June 30th. I don't know what his MOS was or if he worked odd shifts, but generally speaking, the military day starts by 0730, 08 at the latest. Beth was killed right around 7 a.m. There's no record of Dwayne Davis calling in saying he was going to be late, and there's no evidence at this point in time that connects Davis to Beth's death in anything like a murder-for-hire plot either. He may have been a little shady with the whole planning a wedding while still being legally married to someone else, but that certainly doesn't make him a violent criminal. True, but that does make him highly suspicious, I would think. The perpetrator could very well have been one of Beth Hicks's probationers, but there were so many of them, it's hard to know where to start. As we mentioned, no leads were developed from any of the people she was supervising at the time. But to me, this seems like a logical connection to make. But again, nothing has ever come of it. 
This is just me making logical assumptions based on the information I have. In any case, it's most likely that Beth knew her killer or killers. I agree. I don't think it was random. While her home was right off the interstate, a random murder for the sake of a murder just seems out of the question. Robbery that leads to murder, yes, I could see that. But as we said, her truck was still there, her purse and gun were still there, and nothing of any monetary value was missing from her house. The pry marks on her door bother me, though. Absolutely. If it wasn't for the sake of burglary, then you have to consider that someone had forced their way into the house looking for her. She didn't seem overly bothered by it, though. She never reported it to anyone, just told a family member about it, and I have to wonder why she didn't report it. This was 2004. Beth lived alone. She had a gun and presumably knew how to use it. She had connections to law enforcement, after all. She probably just assumed it was someone looking for something easy to take to pawn for drugs. I had someone break into my house once, and all that was missing was my PlayStation. I didn't live in a great neighborhood at the time, and I just assumed that it was someone in the area looking for stuff to sell quickly. I had belongings worth a lot more money than an old gaming system, but that was a quick, easy grab. Beth's family has put up a substantial reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction. So if you know anything about this crime, please call Kendall County Crime Stoppers at one 800 348-LEAD. That's 1-800-348-5323. You can also go to Kendall County Crime Stoppers website and leave a tip online. This podcast has a bigger purpose than just providing information and entertainment. The Homicide Victims Families Rights Act is a bipartisan bill that was signed into law by Congress in 2021 and we want to see it put into action. This law establishes a systematic process for reviewing case files related to cold case murders. The focus is on providing a mechanism for the families and friends of murder victims to request a formal review of such cases. We need an attorney or teams of attorneys and legal professionals to take on the bold and brave fight against the system around the country. In our case, we need someone to fight for Leon to help not only put fresh eyes on the case, but to get his body exhumed to search for evidence that was not collected the first time around. We and other families and friends need assistance with getting FOIA requests. It blows our minds that so many murders occurred from 1976 to 1997 in Brownwood, Texas, under the watch of the same investigators responsible for handling Leon's case. We're going to look at all the unsolved murders in Brownwood, and maybe even a few solved ones if it helps uncover what was happening in that era that left so many families devastated in a community living in fear. If you want to hear more about victim-focused unsolved cases and get updates about what we know, Please subscribe, like, and share our podcast. Also, visit our website, justiceforleon.com, to donate to our cause to hire an attorney. You can also join our email list to stay current on developments on Leon's case and other cases 
we cover as they happen. Please follow and like our Facebook pages for Box in the Basement and Justice for Leon Lorellis and follow our Instagram pages. I'd also like to ask that you sign my petition for my Uncle Leon Lorellis' case to be reopened and reviewed with fresh eyes. And you can find our petition on change.org. I also have a GoFundMe page to hire an attorney to help me get a copy of his autopsy that I have been denied for 27 years. You can find the GoFundMe by searching for Leon Lorellis. That's L-A-U-R-E-L-E-S. Thank you for joining us. Be kind. Later, Gators.